Coming up on the Men at the Movies podcast, we go extraterrestrial with The Martian. This movie wrestles with themes of isolation and loneliness. But Mark teaches us how to make a survivable life out of our own shit. It's worse than you can imagine, and you never want to talk about it again. But we must resolve to go through it, not knowing what is on the other side, even if we're unable to see a path forward. Every day, we lace up our boots, cultivate our crap, and solve one problem at a time. Join us as we discover God's truth in this movie. The movies and stories we love are gateways to see ourselves and God in new ways. Every great story borrows its power from a larger story. The story that's written on our hearts and woven into the fabric of our very being. Hello and welcome to the Men at the Movies podcast. My name is Paul McDonald and joining me from Lynchburg, Virginia is my friend Whaler. How are you doing today, man? Hey, man. Thank you for letting me be here with you. Oh, I'm super excited. We've been sort of trying to to get connected for a couple months and between schedules and trips and all this other stuff, we finally got, got together. Really, and, and there's this, I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes or in the on the website. Uh, there's a there's a video out there on Twitter that I shared with Whaler today as, as about male friendship, and basically it's these two guys sitting on a porch, and one guy's like, "Hey man, appreciate you being on the podcast. I have a confession to make. Uh, we're not actually recording a podcast. I don't have a podcast." And the guy's like, "But we've been sitting here for two hours talking." It's like, "Yeah, but if I said, hey man, come over and talk for two hours, would you have done it?" No. He's like, my, the microphones aren't even connected to anything. They just wander off into the bushes or something. He's like, what about the read? (laughs) Didn't you have me do an ad promo? (laughs) So this is really just an excuse to to get Whaler on and get to know him a little better and and hang out for a little while talking about, uh, not just the movie, but just about life in general. So, uh, super glad to, to get this opportunity. Well, maybe I should get above board full disclosure here. I don't even see this as an interview. I want to go on the record. This is a job interview. Okay. (laughs) I'm just saying maybe it's only part-time it's remote, whatever, but I think men at the movies, Mike could use a little, little whaler in its life. Everybody, everybody needs a little whaler in their life. Well, (laughs) consider my application formally submitted. Sweet. Sweet. Everything, everything in life is a job interview. You never know what God's going to, what's going to happen. Hmm. So, Whaler, you and I met uh, back in March at our, our men, the men's retreat we do here in Charlotte called the Carolina Outpost. We met, we, we hit it off, we exchanged books, obviously exchanged phone numbers and stuff and been texting and emailing. Not as much as I would have liked, but you know, it's, you think long-term relationship or long-distance relationships are hard. Long-term friendships are even harder because mm. you know, it's, it's easy, it's it's. It's hard sometimes just for me to to engage with my friends who live thirty minutes away, mm-hmm. but like to to stay connected with somebody who's several couple hours away is a little more challenging. But not as challenging as it was in the days before technology and text messaging and all that other stuff. So again, mm-hmm. I'm just super excited to have this conversation and get to hang out with you for another hour or so. Yeah, same. It's funny before we went all hot on the mic, you were talking about how. Sometimes our texting becomes modern day journaling. <laughs> and I've had that experience with my closest friends where I'll, you know, you use the smartphone to try to find, uh, I said this word in that message, but I don't remember the rest of it, you know, looking for a link or an address or whatever. So I, I did that last week and pulled up a thread with a buddy that had nothing to do with what I was looking for. But when I went back into it, I was like, dude, I fell so deep into that barrel. It was like an hour before I climbed out of it. <laughs> Because there were just so many gems we had sent each other, yeah. you know, like this quote, there's a, there's a strong commonplace culture in, in our group of friends. So we're always collecting and writing one-liners and excerpts from books, movies, whatever things your friends say to you. Right. And so we, we had this, we just started riffing off of, off of commonplace quotes and it was beautiful to revisit. 
Yeah, it was it was like a, a hope chest kind of memento. And your wife's like, why are you standing over there laughing at your phone? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I screenshot it to her. She knows. <laughs> yeah, we, we haven't had a lot of history with each other, you and me, as October uh, last year, we met at the last, you know, the fall conference. And yeah, since then. No, I think it was for, just March. It was October? I, I don't mean. I don't mean to be the mm, actually guy, but yeah. <laughs> I need those actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was last October when oh. I was there. Yeah. So you were not were you not there at March? Mm-mm. Nope. Huh. This upcoming will be my second attendance. Oh nice. Well, yeah, you know, life with me, it it can be like dog years, so I get it. <laughs> so uh, it was interesting when, when I was like, finally, I was like, dude, we got to do this. Let's get together. Let's, let's talk about one of these movies. And so, uh, you sent me a list with probably 10 ish movies on it. And we're like, Hey, take your pick. Some of them older, some of them newer. I was uh, intrigued by a couple other, couple of them. Um, you know, like the great escape, mm. you know, some, some older stuff. Uh, and I, I think I sent back about three of them mm-hmm. that, that jumped out at me. Uh, and, but you picked the Mar- and then you said, Hey, the Martians, one of my favorite movies of all time, which I'm like, you should have led with that. And we would have gone with the Martian. <laughs> if you start with a movie and say, this was one of my favorite movies of all time, I'm going to say, let's do that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, why, why do you love the Martian? Uh, why, what, what makes it sort of connect with you and, and bring your heart to life? And I mean, it's a great movie. It's 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. But what is it specifically to you that that you're like, oh my gosh, I love this movie. I'll watch it 15 times. Yeah, I liked it even more than I knew. Uh, Adina, my wife, pointed out to me things that you know, she she says that I am Mark Watney. And so the way he does humor in the movie, the way he innovates things, she, in fact, when we were watching it again recently, you know, in preparation for this estimable podcast <laughs> she was actually uh, the whole time on her phone i had no clue but she was typing in whaler moments on her phone <laughs> so like the instant the credits started to roll i get this text from my wife sitting next to me and there's this whole catalog of moments that she had collated and uh you know she's doing it kind of fast so she like leaves the moment and then like has a reason but it was it was touching it was really endearing uh it was it was for years it was a movie that if i had a sick day mm-hmm. right just like laid out catatonic that was a movie that was going to come on and it was a long time it when she pointed out that there was some identity markers for me in the movie that's what pulled me into asking those questions of myself you know what is it about mm-hmm. this film that resonates with me so powerfully and i i got to be really clear I don't say this with any exaggeration at all. There's not a single frame in the movie that doesn't do something to me emotionally. Mm. So the entire film, it's generating a reaction out of me. And there's a lot of films that I like where there will be some stretches where I'm just kind of coasting. Right. You know, the the movie's fun. I like it, but it's not really requiring anything of Now's me. Now's the time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Those yeah. moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, suddenly, dude, The Martian. I am riveted the entire time. I I may as well be leaning forward mm. the whole time. And there's there's no point where e- even when I know how the story ends, and I still cry, I still laugh, I still feel the grief moments as fully as I did the first time, and the places where those scenes dovetail with elements of my life it still catalyzes every single mm. one of those just as much. I think it's one of the good things about sci-fi done well is they'll give you a far-off scenario, uh, an alien species, uh, inverted law of physics, whatever. They, they take you somewhere else and in that show you where you are. So James Cameron's Avatar, you've got this faraway planet with an alien species and it really brings you home to the suffering of indigenous peoples on our planet in so many centuries and even right now. And so you, you, you imagine something that's wild, but it's framed properly. It's, it's the truest stuff that's immediately applicable in your life. Mm. 
And so the Martian, it's actually not that far off. It's one of the things that all the NASA buffs like about it is he has only just barely bent the limits of tech of known technology. Yeah. You know, it's it is imaginable and within reach that kind of Martian expedition. But still, we haven't done it yet, so we imagine. So we're on a different planet, but God bless this guy alone with a world, a hostile world to himself. I find so much universal human experience in that. And there's so many dimensions of my life where that feels like the truest sentiment. I am alone Mm. here and it's hostile and I am desperate to figure this out. Yeah. And and I think that's what not just sci-fi, but good stories in general, they mm-hmm. they package stuff in a way that you 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 know it's almost a subliminal message where you've got this unfamiliar territory. So your guard is down because you're trying to figure out what's new, but what connects you to it isn't what's new, it's what's familiar. Like you said, the 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 feeling of being alone. And sort of empathizing with that main character of what would it be like to wake up and see that the, the the Mav, the thing is gone. And if you haven't seen the movie, but you know, the synopsis is there's a Mars mission. They have to leave emergently. Mark Watney, Matt Damon's character gets left behind because he gets knocked over in the storm and basically has to survive until they can figure out a way to come rescue him. That's not bad for a one sentence synopsis. For a, I watched the extended edition. It was two and a half hours, uh, and and did not oh. feel it at all. I didn't know an extended edition existed. That was all I could get off of Prime. Was the extended edition? Oh, uh, now I need this in my life. I've only ever had the original on, like when I bought it years ago. And I'd be super curious to know what additional content there is. Oh golly! Now I feel deficient <laughs> for the remainder of the podcast. But. Thank you. You've given me goals again. <laughs> well, that's that's part of my goal is uh, make sure that my guest feels la- less than. <laughs> oh, man, I mean, if there's a commentary, uh, all right, all right. Especially because well, you know it, a director's commentary with Ridley Scott talking yeah, about it. I mean, he's he's not yeah. half bad. This is that moment in the job interview where I feel like I lost a lot of points with you. <laughs> the one, the one you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> I was ready for the round manholes question, and then you hit me with extended edition. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, and and we I talk about it with Brit a lot of times. These these big stories they talk about. Oh, the world is ending. You know, whether it's you know, the Avengers or Transformers or all the the big sort of scary movies, you don't really care mm-hmm. about the world ending. You care about the relationships, the personal things going on. Because again, you connect with that character, you empathize with them, you can you feel their pain. And you hope that you would react the same way, or or it depends on the character. You know, sometimes you're like, oh, don't do that. Even as they're making that decision, you know it's gonna go poorly. Cause again, that's how you make a good story is conflict. So you mentioned the theme of of loneliness and isolation. And I think that this movie did such a good job of reflecting that. I mean, you saw him lonely. You saw him talking to the the camera. One of the few times that narration actually worked well, you know, as he's reading the the letters or they're reading mm-hmm. what they're typing and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it worked very. Um, it it didn't feel awkward or anything. But when you see his, the character's reaction when he gets connection through the Pathfinder or through the emails, or even, you know, on the radio at the very end, getting to actually hear another person and the emotional response. Um, You know, and I would imagine to a degree, you know, it's super awesome that your wife went through that, the movie and was like, here are all the, the whaler moments. (laughs) Because you're like, oh, like she sees me. Which almost works directly against the theme of this movie, which is that theme of isolation and loneliness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she is uniquely uniquely equipped and positioned to give me a gift like that. You're you're a married man. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't 
we haven't gotten on that level with each other yet. We haven't really had those sort of history disclosures yet. But I'll go out on a limb and assume that we can commiserate with each other in how utterly alone you can feel in your marriage mm. at times. Uh, I think Robin Williams said, the worst thing in the world isn't being alone. The worst thing in the world is being with people that make you feel all alone. Mm. Just ugh, heartbreaking sentiment. And as as somebody who's been through a divorce, mm. I do know what it's like to feel alone in a marriage. But then on the other side, I know the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Where, you know, my I, I like you said, you, you, like what your wife does for you, and and I have a trip coming up to. I had an opportunity to go out to a, a Wild at Heart event out in. Um, out in Colorado mm. and it was kind of expensive and I was like, ah, I don't, you know, it's pushing the, the boundaries of our budget. And so I brought it up to my wife, like, Hey, I got invited to this event. What do you think? She's like, it sounds like something you would love to do. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like no question mm. of like, there's no pushback, no response like that at all. Mm -hmm. I remember one time I, I enjoy bourbon hunting from time to time. You know, out it, it, as I'm driving through the mountains of North Carolina, I'll find a, these out of the way liquor stores that might have some hard to find bourbons that that I enjoy. I've never heard that term, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I call it my bourbon hunting and fly fishing uh, adventures. And uh, In one day, season I, I, all year long, right? Exactly. There's it's bourbon. It's never out of season. And so uh, I remember one day I came home and I had probably overspent my, what I anticipated. And I legitimately was afraid I'm just going to get home and she was going to take my credit card. <laughs> <laughs> like that was the fear walking into the house. Bourbon hunter's license revoked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, and I showed, I was like, look, I found this, I found this. And she was legit excited for me. She's uh, like, Oh, I didn't think that you'd, we'd be able to find this bourbon. I didn't think that you'd be, we'd be able to get this in North Carolina. Man. So instead, like the exact opposite of what I was afraid of, mm -hmm. very similar to how Sean Bean's character interacted. Uh, let me look at his, what was his name? Uh, Mitch, who was the Hermes flight director. He was the one pushing. He knew the crew. Mm -hmm. He was like, we need to tell them Mark's alive. Mm -hmm. We need to let them decide if they're going to go back and get him when that became an option mm -hmm. later. And he knew the crew. Whereas uh, Jeff Daniels' character, Teddy, who was the head of NASA, he was, was, he didn't know the crew. He didn't know what it was like. He didn't, to be a part of that team, he was more concerned about uh, you know, maximizing the publicity, minimizing the risk. And he didn't really get it. And mm -hmm. you saw that that was one of those sort of lower level conflicts. Mm hmm that came up through the movie. But again, this idea that like through um, Sean Bean's character. And again, I love that they called it the council of Elrond yeah, right. <laughs> when, cause he was Boromir in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Which point of interest on Sean Bean's character. I can't think of a single instance in his filmography where he doesn't pull some kind of betrayal. <laughs> And it just feels unfair to him. It's like, is this how he's gotten categorized in Hollywood? They're like, all right, this scene, this guy's a betrayer. Where's Sean Bean? Bring him in. <laughs> <laughs> he's the betrayal guy. We need somebody to stab someone in the back or turn against the main guy. Or <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, every character has his rationale. This was, I think, the only instance I can remember where his character is fully virtuous in the betrayal. But right. he still has to do subterfuge and, you know, cloak and dagger. And then it's another, it's another betrayal. So I think he's batting a thousand on characters who betray somebody. <laughs> I'm sure we will have some fact checkers. Let us know if that's not true. <laughs> They'll be like, hey, what about this character in this movie that we have never seen? Probably They're like this guy is ruining his job application. <laughs> Shut him up. And and it goes back to that, that sense of loneliness. Like to me, Teddy was very lonely. Because he wasn't connected with the team. He wasn't connected with the mission. He he was very above it all. Mm -hmm. You know, even when uh, Donald Gulliver's character, uh, Rich, comes in and he's there, he's just like, you can leave now. After he explains <laughs> what he's what all the math is. 
He's like, you can go. You are, I said, good day, sir. <laughs> but he's alone. Whereas, uh, uh, Sean, uh, Mitch, sorry. I keep think, just saying Sean Bean, Mitch, Sean Bean's character is connected, even though they are separated by thousands of miles. Mm. You know, the, the, his team, I mean, one of his team members is still on Mars. The rest of his team's on a, on a spaceship. Mm-hmm. He's more connected to them than Teddy is to the people around him. Mm. On a high-level view, that profile you just identified, that seems to be... Maybe that would be the... That, yeah, I would say that's, that's a strong tendency for anybody at a high executive level, right? They're aware of their people, but there's a lot more of a a, a systems orientation mm-hmm. than there is a, a people orientation. How do we keep this thing moving? And he, he says exactly that when they have their their reckoning with each other. You know, he's like, "Yeah, you might have killed them, Mitch." Right. And I have that clip, oh. so we'll go ahead and play it. You don't want me to do their voices and reenact it by myself right now. It goes better. Yeah. <laughs> It's got the music and the soundtrack, yeah, I trust which you. we'll talk about here. So this is uh, Mitch and Teddy both talking after uh, Mitch has done his his sort of his cloak and dagger stuff where he gives them the option. The crew decides to do the slingshot around the earth move. And so now Teddy's going to have to have a press conference where he says NASA's going. This was NASA's plan all along because mm-hmm. he's all about saving face and looking good mm-hmm. to promote the program. But there's a stark difference in here, this contrast between the two men that I think is is key that you just brought up. Annie will go before the media this morning and inform them of NASA's decision to reroute the Hermes to Mars. Sounds like a smart move, considering the circumstances. Whoever gave them the maneuver, they only passed along information. Crew made the decision on their own. You may have killed them, Mitch. We're fighting the same war. Every time something goes wrong, the world forgets why we fly. I'm trying to keep us airborne. It's bigger than one person. No, it's not. When this is over, I'll expect your resignation. I understand. Bring our astronauts home. This is one of those really difficult scenarios where both men are entirely right in Mm. what they're saying and neither of them has a single villainous impulse in them it's it's difficult to 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 be the director and to deal with the risk of we have one near certainty of a casualty versus an increased chance of five other casualties and then like he says you know, NASA in this in this parallel universe, NASA is hanging on by a thread. They're having trouble getting funded for paper clips. And so it's it's not even just the five lives or six lives, whatever, in in like real peril right now, but how many thousands of jobs and families is he having to consider who's gonna eat next month if everything gets defunded right away because the scandal blows up. So that's a that's a terrible amount of of angst to have to weigh there's I never got the I never felt like he didn't care about Mark they did a good job of portraying him as very he is cold he's calculating but he doesn't come off like a sociopath at all and so for me here we come you know first uh first formal Jesus moment on this this podcast commentary I actually see a lot of resonance in that scene to the incident we have with Paul and Barnabas in their argument over Mark. Mm. Mark blew it enough times. And Paul said, that's it. He's done. Barnabas is like, mm, I think he's still our guy. Let's, let's give him another shot. And Paul's like, absolutely not. We know how this goes. Paul and Barnabas split ways years and years later. We've got another letter from Paul where he's asking, he's like, Hey, send that guy Mark along. Cause he's useful for the gospel. Every sermon I've ever heard preached on that has always been, see there, Barnabas was right. Paul should have been more patient. Maybe there's some truth to that. I'm willing to acknowledge mm-hmm. the possibility. But it's only just recently I was reading a different commentary by Daniel Lancaster where 
he was inferring that both reactions were critical for Mark's character formation. That Mark needed hard consequences to his misbehavior. And he needed a big brother willing to take him under his wing regardless. And it could be the case that Paul would not have had a Mark to write about and ask for if he hadn't first been the hard-nosed guy in his life. And so the tension is how, how can both these things be true at the same time? And that's the difficulty yeah. in the scenario of the Martian is somebody has to just make that decision. And the thing that Mitch did was he took that fiat away from the director and put it in the crew's autonomy. So they now have the potency to make this determination for themselves. And let's be honest, they're risking hundreds of millions of dollars in equipment, right? right? And then they're risking their own family's emotional well-being if it doesn't go well. But still, it was their decision to make, which was the thing that Mitch was saying from the beginning. Even before there was a rescue op in the picture, he's like, are you kidding me? You're not going to let them communicate with their crewmate? That's their decision. That's not yours. So I think that's the issue where we can say the director was wrong to forcibly remove everybody else from that decision-making capacity. But otherwise, the things that he's saying and the things that motivate him, I think those are all good and entirely virtuous, but it still leaves the tension of how do you flip this coin and make the best of all possible decisions. Well, it's interesting. There's there's two things that I that kind of stuck out to me as you were talking. One is the, when you look at Barnabas and Paul, mm-hmm. and from what I know of Barnabas, his main gifting and mission was making disciples. Like he was Paul's mentor. There's a lot of thought. Paul's mentor after he became a believer. Oh yeah. Paul didn't go from, you know, the the road to Damascus. He didn't go straight from there. He didn't go straight from meeting Jesus to preaching the gospel. Right. He like disappeared for like 14 years that we don't know what happened, but there's a lot of thought out there. He spent a lot of time with Barnabas watching how Barnabas did it, learning from him. And, and so that when you look at who Barnabas was and his gifting, it's likely he was a mentoring type, a disciple maker. Mm-hmm. Paul, his calling was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. His mission was different. Neither one of them was wrong. I mean, without if, if that doesn't happen, who knows if Paul and Timothy become a, a tag team down the road mm. because then it's all Barnabas and, and Mark. Mm-hmm. Which I which I want to put a pin in because I want to use that to talk about our next clip about the, like you have to go through shit to get to where you need to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we're gonna we're, so we're gonna put a pin in that one, uh, because the other idea that you brought up, this idea that that Teddy is all about safety, and you see this trope show up in a lot of movies, especially in the father role. I just want to keep you safe. Mm. I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to protect this family. I mean, even Walter White used that garbage. <laughs> you know, he he that's that was his lie. That was what he said, but that's not what he really believed mm. uh, because it became all about him. But you see that with with Teddy of I it, it I need to take away their autonomy and their decision making because I need to protect them. Mm. We can't tell them Mark's alive because they have to focus on their mission. Mm-hmm. I know best. You know they they can't communicate with them because they need to focus on their mission. I don't want to do anything to jeopardize their mission. Well, maybe the fact they're flying back thinking they've abandoned somebody on Mars might may war heavily might weigh more heavily on them than the joy of saying, oh my gosh, he's actually alive. We didn't abandon him, mm. you know, and, and, and I mean, sort of the, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But a lot of times when we're in these leadership positions, especially and and as, as husbands, as fathers, we want to protect our family, our, ch- especially our children from suffering Mm -hmm. from doing anything that might have untoward outcomes you may have killed them mitch well how does it feel when you give your kids a driver's license Mm. when you give them that amount of freedom when they go to a college and you see on their your your app your phone that you're tracking them that they're getting back to their apartment at three o'clock in the morning (laughs) 
you know, they're 18, 19, 20, maybe 25. Mm-hmm. You know, some people kind of tag along for a long time. <laughs> you know, there's more than one form of weaning. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and I think we need to wean from our kids a little more as they get older. But you have to let them decide what life they want to live. Hmm. And that's what you see in, in these this, that conversation, but in this whole movie between these two men of he's wanting to put the power in the hands of the crew to allow them to make deci- the decisions on how to live their lives. It's like all I did, all they got was information. Mm-hmm. They made the choice. Mm-hmm. And I think that God does that a lot with us. He gives us the information, but then allows us to make the choice. Yeah. Sometimes there's consequences. Often there are consequences. Oh, yeah. Which I think takes us back to the, 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 the shit pin, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> May and, that and remain te- a designation in Men at the Movies forever <laughs> now. <laughs> so to tee up this part of the conversation, I'm going to play a clip from actually the very end of the movie. Sort of the last actual scene of the movie. Um, before you get the sort of the post the credits scene that's going on there. This is after Mark gets back, which is kind of cool because Mark is short for Marcus, which is Latin for from Mars, mm. which you learn all kinds of things when you're scrubbing through Amazon and you see the little trivia pop up I, it, it, it's as you're pulling the clips. And so he's walking into a class because he's been tagged. Interestingly, he brought up earlier about the Mark, Mark Watney syllabus. And so now he's talking to astronauts potential astronaut, astronaut candidates to say, hey, look, this is what it's like to be in space. Here's the things you're going to face. Here's how to to get past it. Hmm. And to me, this is sort of the the culmination of the whole movie. Um, And probably we could have played this clip and just talked about this for over an hour. And so we'll go ahead and play it and then sort of we'll, we'll go touch back on the on the, the on the shit pin that I mentioned earlier. <laughs> Welcome to the astronaut candidate program. Now, pay attention because this could save your life. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, let me get a few things out of the way right off the bat. Yes, I did, in fact, survive on a deserted planet by farming in my own shit. Yes, it, uh, it's actually worse than it sounds, so let's not talk about that ever again. Uh, the other question I get most frequently is, when I was up there, stranded by myself, did I think I was gonna die? Yes, absolutely. And that's one you need to know going in because it's gonna happen to you. This is space. It does not cooperate. At some point, everything's gonna go south on you. Everything's gonna go south and you're gonna say, this is it. This is how I end. Now you can either accept that or you can get to work. That's all it is. You just begin. You do the math, you solve one problem and you solve the next one and then the next. And if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. All right, questions? Where the entire class all raises their hand. (laughs) But and, and this was a this was a concept you brought up in our in our kind of our pre-show conversation. This idea of how to make a survivable life out of our own shit. Mm-hmm. And we see that going back to that idea, Paul Barnabas. They had to go through that shit in order to accomplish their missions, both Paul with his gospel to the Gentiles and Barnabas with his role and gifting as a as a as a mentor. I love what th- that idea. Did I think I was going to die? Yes. Mm-hmm. And granted, very few of us listening, very few of us, period, ever go into space where we feel like we're going to die in outer space. Mm-hmm. But we all have those moments where we want to die, mm-hmm. where we feel like we're going to die, where we're like, God, take this away because it hurts too much. I can't do this anymore. And those are those moments of shit. Mm-hmm. And we all have them. Either we're going through it or we have them in our past. More are coming <laughs> in the future where we feel like, I feel like ev- when everything goes south, where we're, we're like, 
tell God, God, we're going to have words at some point. Not now, because I don't know what I want to say, but we're going to have words. Those moments where we say, okay, God, whenever you want to talk, I'm ready to listen, mm-hmm. waiting for you to show up. Mm-hmm. We're all going to have the own, our, our, our own shit that we've had to deal with. We prefer to have it all nice and packaged and hidden away. But as he said, it is worse than you can imagine. And I don't ever want to talk about it again. Yeah. But what we have learned, we actually need that shit that we've been through to make a survivable life moving forward. Mm. Even when it has gotten better, and even when it has gotten better than it could have been without going through those occasions, it's still the case that I would never have willingly signed up for any of those classes. <laughs> right. Ever. I've had several near-death experiences. It's been at least a few times where I've seen murder in a man's eyes standing right in front of me. I have some, some harrowing stories of late-night encounters. As a, a roofer for 16 years, had some close calls there. Nothing ever scared me to feeling like I couldn't act. It's like in each one of those instances, I was still capable of responding. I might have some emotional reactions after, but right. in you know, instead, like I, I experienced time distillation. Everything slows down. It's just pure action. You know, I feel very methodical, in control. I don't like the scenario, but I'm there for it until we get this thing resolved. But man, about five years or so ago, when it was terrifying stuff between me and my wife, I I never knew fear like that. Fear that that gripped my entire body and made me feel absolutely powerless. You know, there was there was some nights where I was sitting alone and I actually thought that I was going to die just sitting there. My heart was so crazy, like physically, my heart was so crazy. I couldn't breathe straight. And I thought somebody was just going to find me dead the next morning. Mm. It's probably the case that what I was experiencing was a panic attack. But for all those near-death experiences previously, I never felt anything like that in my body. And so I had no way to process it. I'm ashamed to say this, but before that event, I always had contempt for people that talked about panic attacks. I was like, what? You just deal with the situation. What's wrong with you? I don't feel Wheat that. Sauce. Well, <laughs> yeah, that that feeling doesn't reside in me anymore. <laughs> plenty, plenty of empathy for for panic attacks, and and just what happens when you are disembodied from yourself, you know, a stranger in your own body, and your body becomes little more than a wheat, a, a meat wagon, and you're not in in control at the helm anymore. Huh. Terrifying, absolutely terrifying experience, and you know, you give all of yourself to marriage. And this is the one person you are most committed to. It's, in many cases, the only meaningful vow that's ever been made. And when that's under threat, what is the recourse? Mm. What can you do? And it is inevitably just a resolve that is adamant to go through the shit. Having no idea what's on the other side not being able to see a path forward. The only thing in front of you is the muck and the slog. And all you can do is lace up your boots for it the next day. Hmm. So how did you get through it? We fought a lot. We fought a lot, a lot. It's a wonder looking back. Um, Are we on the clock for therapy billing right now? I just want to know. No, this is that's all pro bono. <laughs> Excellent. All right. All right. I felt this get into different waters. Wait a second. Maybe this is one of his one of his revenue streams. <laughs> yeah, that that it wasn't pretty uh at first. Uh, looking back, I can see now that even when we were having the worst fights ever mm. and the ugliest things said. You know, when, when you think it's over already, Mm. all bets are off and the things that you would, 
conceal from each other. Yeah. 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 The there's, there's no more call for discretion. All the, all the decorum is gone. Oh boy. The paint that gets splashed up on the walls in those interactions. There's a, there's a folk singer named Dave Wilcox that has Uh an album. Oh yes. I love that. You know him. Uh, the, the album when I was in college. (laughs) <laughs> that's true yeah i forgot about that you you've you've had some proximity to him geographically uh he did a concert i think in Asheville called live stories and songs mm. or maybe just stories and songs but it's a live album and so you're there for the ride with the audience and it's perfectly arranged prodigious songwriter brilliant storyteller it's it's a perfect album perfect album He's got one song called Start With The Beginning or Start With The Ending. And in that, he's inviting married couples to assume the worst, start there, die first, get it out of the way. Mm. And there's a line where he says, after all your expectations shatter on the kitchen floor, you see another human suffering and you wonder what the war was for. We shattered each other quite a lot. And then you're on the hook for trying to help put each other back together. And I think, and back that up, I don't think that every marriage has to go through that kind of violence. Uh, And and to be really clear, I know that uh, it's common enough. I just need to make make sure everybody knows we're not talking about physical violence. There was never anything abusive between us. Meanness, but nobody ever was physically injured. Just a lot of of verbal wounds. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, I'd, sometimes I'd kind of rather get slapped around because that stuff will heal. Right. You say something to me, I always assume you mean it because that's right. my walk around. If I say something to you, I mean it. And if it's mean, I might have to apologize later that I said that to you, <laughs> but I'm generally not going to change. Still meant it. <laughs> yeah, that's the rub. Yeah. And so I try to conceal all that stuff. Right. Interestingly, I I just read a preacher that said, whenever you criticize or slander somebody, you're agreeing with the devil's appraisal of them. Mm. Wow. So even friends that I have friction with, and I've been sitting on my hands about these, like, you know, I don't like when you and and you're just a, you know, like sometimes years I've been sitting on those kinds of sentiments. It's just this week I've been like, all right, turn that around. Maybe those things are presently true in how they're behaving but what's the truer stuff at the bottom of their identity Mm. that god is still trying to call them into and can you speak to that life rather than speaking to the current manifestations of death i know sometimes we've got to have hard words you know it's not for no reason we've got protocol in the scripture for confrontations and so on but in as much as we can handle it trying to speak life first and foremost and last so yeah, we had uh, we had some friends that came alongside us that were competent, um, even friends that were peers and not exactly in a counselor's seat. They said some really cool things to us in that season. You know, the one couple in particular almost got angry with us and was just like, "You guys are not allowed to get divorced. You are not allowed to get divorced." And then they told us all these beautiful things of what we'd meant to them in marriage. Mm-hmm. And how our life together had been a model for them and things that they were trying to emulate and what they saw in us. I was like, all right, this would have been nice to know before. (laughs) 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 Why wasn't this sentiment ever expressed previously? (laughs) (laughs) But there, when we were in some real peril with each other, it was so helpful to have that mirror held up because I would never have assumed that about us. I knew we enjoyed each other, but I would never have imagined the words we don't know how to have fun together unless y'all are around. It's like, wow. Didn't know we had that as a Holy spirit superpower. That's fun. And so it, it was, it was a lot. And to be real honest about it, I don't think we've completely recovered. Uh, it's certainly a lot better, but the work is ongoing. We still have some arguments, but there's so much more self-control between both of us and so much more space giving and even basic things, 18 years in, I feel like an idiot for saying this, but basic things like beginning with questions rather than leaping forward to the conclusions, you know, yeah. when you said this or you did that or you forgot, whatever the thing is like, hey, what was going on 
and then play out the moment, you know, or can you help me understand? And most of the time it's a lost in translation problem. It's not an intention problem. And then, right. yeah, sometimes there's clumsiness and maybe even bad habit. But I, I do become increasingly more convinced that she desperately wants me in her life. Mm. And I know that all of the ore in me is magnetized to all of that in her. And there is no life without her at this mm. point. Uh, God forbid, but even if something dire happens, there, there, there is no forward progression where I'm absolutely divorced from her influence in my life. And I, I'm, I'm adamant we won't get divorced, but we live in a busted world. Sometimes death happens prematurely. I don't want any of that stuff to happen, but if it did, I, I am, I'm married to her. You know, we're, we're fused. We are like Adam and Eve returned to one creature. And there's, there's no, there's no real separation of that, you know? And I, I say this with respect, but when you when you allude to your your experience with divorce, mm-hmm. there's it seems to me like there's always a kind of death that happens in that, where even when there's chapter two, life goes on, there's healing, there's still some wound, some scar that remains, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I deal with uh, regret of of leaving a trail of broken pieces behind me, mm. and you know, as we said, the shit that's behind us and mm-hmm. um sorrow for the the wounded and broken hearts that I've inflicted not just on my ex-wife but on my children mm-hmm. you know and um that's not a a thing that you can easily recover from you know how do you like process that you know as a as a you know when you we talk about processing the shit in our lives mm-hmm. and and to realize yes I had to go through that to become who I am today. You know, I had to go through that to come to know Jesus the way that I do now. Mm-hmm. To to come face to face with my own brokenness. Like it was through therapy with my wife now. Mm-hmm. You know, when when we were early on married, very similar experience where just saying hateful hurtful things out of the pain that I lived with on a daily basis. But it was interesting. It was one of the moments in therapy that I remember was sitting across the couch from my wife. She's sitting there crying and the, the counselor's like, don't you see what effect your words have? Like, it doesn't matter what she t- said to you. It matters what you, how you respond. I would say, oh, she hurt me, so now I need to hurt her. Or I would try to hurt her so that... It's like, I'll prove that you care about me. Mm. She said, my wife would say, she's like, you know, we get in an argument. And as soon as she started crying, I was fine. Because it's like, oh, yep, there you go. She's, it's, it, that's enough. Uh, and as you mentioned, it is, it takes years to recover. Even when, as I'm changed, as I've changed, we would be, find ourselves in a similar situation and she would respond in that same manner, I was like, I am not the monster that you remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, one of my, one of my friends, when looking back at, at the, the, my past, you know, and talking to and how to talk to your children about that. Cause you know, a, a life of podcasting and sharing your story means that you share your story and people know all the shit. Mm-hmm. So eventually your kids are going to know that. How do you have that conversation? And, and, my buddy said, uh, I would open it with a, with saying that this is the vulnerable truth of a man who no longer exists. Because both are true. Yes, this happened. Yes, these actions describe me, but that's not who I am anymore. Mm. And it feels like we've, it, 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 I think it, it feels in some ways that we've kind of gone far afield from the Martian, <laughs> which to go far from the Martian is it's, it's going even farther than Mars. But the point is whether you see a field full of shit yeah, or you're currently in it or you're trying to hide it away and pack it, the truth is that the only way 
to make a survivable life is through it. Yeah. You can't stash it away. Mm-hmm. You can't just kind of pile it, but you also can't just sort of wallow in it because that doesn't, you, you have to cultivate it. Mm. And that's what we see Mark do. And as he mentioned, he, he lived because of it. Mm-hmm. He could, he would have died without it. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, that's, that's what you I love what you said about, about marriages. Look at the end and die. And when you die to yourself and you realize the impact that you have on the other person, it's like, oh, that's when you can actually start loving your wife the way that Jesus loves us. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a truth that I've been practicing for a few years anyway. And I think it developed in the wake of continuing to try to further man up as a husband in the relationship. There's really only one thing, there's only one certainty that we get to expect as married men. And with that command to, as, as the master loves the assembly, you know, as, as Yeshua loves the ecclesia, husbands love your wives. And his love was exemplified in an unrelenting willingness to die on her behalf. And so, you know, the, the, the ministry that I work in, uh, let me footnote this. So my boss man feels like I didn't waste company time, proven men, (laughs) proven, proven ministries and the work that we do and helping men and women get away from their addictions to pornography, unwanted sexual behaviors. And in that coming alongside a lot of marriages in peril, Mm. right? Men have a hard time reorienting to their married circumstances when it's not what they expected and implicitly not what they feel entitled to. Hmm. And so the that's the, a good word, by the way, entitled to. Yeah. Because I think as men, we feel entitled to a certain marriage. Sure. Yeah. Or relationship or, you know. Emotional gratification, deference, respect sexual satisfaction and the number of guys I've got to talk to that assume their pornography problem is going to go away when they get married because they assume sex is going to be regular and her libido is going to be the same as his and all the things. Oh, it never goes that way ever. Yeah. We could have a whole other, a whole, a whole other hour on, on why the problems with not just porn, but why you go to porn and then yeah, what you're actually looking for and all this other stuff. Like you said, the unwanted sexual behaviors. And it's like, no, what you actually, you want something a lot more than what you're actually getting. Yeah. Yeah. It, Lewis yeah. said something similar, you know, before right. pornography was what it is nowadays. He said, a man that goes to a brothel goes in search of a good thing, but he's going to the worst of all possible places to find it. So those desires are good. They're misdirected. They're corrupted. There's corrosion yeah. that's taken over our spirits and our participation with them. But the desire is designed by God. And if it is frustrated, again, I don't want this, but it might be the case where the only thing I get to really experience in my duties as a husband is an unmitigated death. And not even a heroic kind where I get to be the guy that, you know, pushes everybody else out of the way of the bus and, oh, it's just, uh, but you know, the, I think the worst death is the one that you just wither away too slowly. The death that no one knows about. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the unheralded death, the death without a a heroic song. I, I know some men that have some hard arrangements with their wives. I'm not there when nobody else is around. Obviously, I don't get the big brother camera. So I have to step into the punch and say there's dimensions of the story that I just can't know. But having been around them when they're together, seeing tendencies, how they socialize and all that, it seems like in many cases, she is hell to live with. And I'll see them doing their damnedest to be faithful to her. And everything that implies they are dying a very hard death 
And that mm-hmm. becomes the only thing they can realistically expect. I don't wish that on anybody. Well, and I've I've seen that sort of with with older patients. Yeah. When one of them has dementia. Mm. Like I remember seeing a patient, a, a man came in and he's very combative. He's very arguing. He's just because he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what anything that's going on. And his wife's there calling him, co- trying to calm him down. And I just remember seeing that and thinking, yep, this is the worse. <laughs> yeah. Remember say for better or worse, this is the worse. Yeah. I've, I've already got Adina on the hook that if I start going that way, she's going to give me the best of all, all possible arsenic. Cause <laughs> I don't want to be that the, to somebody with the finest poisons. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Make it swift and painless for everybody involved. You know, and to be fair, like the, the instance you're bringing up is, is the counter example. I, I know that wives have similar arrangements with husbands where he's just awful, you know, and, and she's in it in many cases trying to salvage what she can for the sake of the kids. You know, she's given mm-hmm. up on her own plight and it's just trying to make the best of a busted situation for their progeny. Goes both ways. I definitely not making it a, a man's only problem. But when you say that we're far afield, yeah, maybe we're into extended edition commentary on the Martian. <laughs> but I actually think this is the most central example we could call upon in relating to Mark Watney. When you see all of Earth being so invested and doing everything they can to rescue this one lost astronaut on a distant planet, it is always the case that each one of us is a world unto ourselves. The ongoing need to practice empathy with each other, to feel gravity in their world that is necessarily distinct from mine. The laws of physics in your emotional continuum are going to be radically different than they are in my atmosphere. I want to become fluent in that. I want to be an interstellar astronaut in my capabilities of traversing people's heart spaces, Mm. speaking their native language knowing how to move within their native habitat. I want to be really good at that. Mm. And I think my life with my wife is the primary curriculum and training grounds for any of that. Sure. If we don't handle our kingdom and the house, Mm -hmm. wife and kids, if we are unable to, and I'm not saying that everybody goes perfect and everybody's a believer and everybody's like involved in missions, but if we're not handling their hearts well, how can we be expected to handle anybody's hearts well? Yeah, it's it's so disillusioning. I won't name them just for the sake of people that are uh, emotionally invested in their influence. I don't want to take that away. But it is disheartening how many of the so-called greats in Christian anthologies before us left amazing tomes of sermon books, hymnodies, you know, long trails in the mission field. And they were horrific with their families, sometimes right. maybe just absent, but still, right. they, they didn't seem like thoroughly good men, not to their families. And, and that's, that's where you're going to win the most credibility with me. And I, I do think our children, especially, you know, our calling, wherever you are in Christendom, our collective calling is to make disciples. The children that we have are the surest bet with any disciples we might ever make. And so if you're not going to be responsible with that immediate sphere of influence in your life, why am I going to care what you've done in any other concentric circle outside of it? Yeah, that that's one of the chilling stories is uh this uh, that our fr- my friend Morgan Snyder shares is uh, there's a funeral for a man and and everybody's coming up at the giving the eulogies and saying, oh, what a great man he was. What a mentor, what a leader, all this stuff. And his son's in the back saying, my dad sounded awesome. <sighs> I never knew that man. I think as we we sort of torn, turn to close, we're, we're going to kind of have our closing conversation and then I'm going to play the last clip as the last clip, as the last thing. Mm. And it's going to be the the letter that Mark writes to Commander Lewis to say, hey, can you talk to my parents to tell them basically that the shit was worth it? Mm. That they were great parents. Mm-hmm. That I I died doing what I love 
dying for something bigger than me. Because I think that's that's the bow on the conversation, right? We're we are dying for something bigger than us. Yeah, that's what Jesus said for the joy set before him suffered. And he didn't just suffer on, you know, uh, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. <laughs> he suffered by coming from heaven, mm. you know, by by suffering through all of that. Mm-hmm. And that's what Paul talks about, I think, in Philippians, where he said, Jesus, you know, it, it, going back to that idea of of the marriage that we think we're entitled to, the families we think we're entitled to, the jobs, the situations, the environment we think we're entitled to. Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But set that aside in pursuit of us. Mm. So he was entitled, he was entitled to it because he is God. Mm-hmm. And yet he set that aside. You know, everywhere you look, he he never, Jesus was the least entitled person when you look through the gospels. Mm-hmm. He was constantly moving out in compassion, reaching out to those in need, not demanding respect, not demanding gratification. In fact, pushing people away and saying, don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and as husbands, I think that you, Jesus is our model. And how can we be more like that every day? And it's by being closer to him every day. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so we are, that's how we'll close. But Whaler, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for the audition. I uh, would definitely love to have you back as often as you are available. Yeah. yeah. Let's get those upvotes from the men at the movies <laughs> listeners. <laughs> give us some thumbs up, thumbs down, put comments, whatever you want to do. Let the boss man uh, know. Give us recommendations for uh, for next movies to do. So, uh, Whaler, you, you mentioned Proven Ministries. Where can people find out more about that? Uh, either if they or someone they know uh, not just is struggling with an addiction to porn, but want to have a greater sense of sexual integrity and sexual wholeness, mm-hmm. not just in their marriage, but in themselves. I mean, it's not just for couples. It's for people who who want to find more sexual integrity. Absolutely. Yeah, it is much more framed around the positive than the negative. <laughs> Most of the time, people have a particular set of struggles that has them connecting with us in the first place. But we've had men that didn't have a struggle per se. Same thing with women. The heart of any of our curriculum is cultivating your intimacy with God. When you're doing that well, you're naturally getting away from the other stuff. And so it's it's why the rearview mirror is so much smaller than the windshield. What we're <laughs> pursuing is really the yes. ultimate focus. The problem matters. You know, we'll, we'll keep it in the corner of our eye. But you know, the old word of repentance, uh, teshuva in Hebrew, is just about face. And so... You don't get to just feel sad. People think if I just keep confessing, it's like, mm, you have to do things. But yeah. at the bottom of it, it is very much just cultivating your intimacy with the Lord, doing everything you can to chase after his holiness, giving all of our lives to becoming like the master. And so provenministries.org, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your station in life, you'll find something that will be helpful to all of your yeah. relationships. We have resources for men and women on the lady side, whether they are wanting to cultivate their sexual integrity or perhaps they're on the betrayed side of the story. Mm. We have means to come alongside them. The thing that we're pushing a lot more is the sextalk.com, which is the resource for parents to be mm. equipped to be these coaches of sexuality in the home. You know, most kids, it, here's a harrowing statistic. The average age of exposure to pornography nowadays is between 8 and 11. Without the biology to respond, they already have their sexual template hijacked, and their nervous system has been royally, royally taken over. And in most cases, it's going to be years, if not decades, before they begin to reckon with that. So the sextalk.com is the best shot we have of potentially 20 years from now having a wildly different culture in the church where Mm. it's no longer assumed that everybody has some kind of a porn problem in secret. Instead, we would recover what has always been the story of God's people, whatever culture, whatever century, whatever country, the first thing that ever set us apart was sexual integrity. 
that was the thing that sur- the surrounding culture would be like, what? They do monogamy or celibacy and they're happy? Huh? How does that even work? <laughs> it was always the first thing to set us apart. And now, just on a statistical analysis, there's no distinction between God's people and the surrounding culture anymore. So we'll always be committed to pulling people out of the fire and helping restore them, but it's going to be so much better when parents are stationed again as the central authorities of sex and sexuality, the good and the bad. They, they have to be centralized in that influence at home again, because when they're not, that's why kids are learning about sex in all the worst possible places. So provenministries.org and thesextalk.com. And I promise it will make your life better. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again, Whaler, for coming on, sharing some time, sharing your humor and part of your story. Um, I've been, I've enjoyed it and uh, look forward to our next conversation. The nature of things that you were sharing, that would be brave to share in a private conversation. And here you are doing it for the interwebs. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, I can't help but admire how willing you are to be vulnerable. Even if you frame it in the I'm not that man anymore language, you're still telling your story. And to do that on this kind of a platform is really big. And I'm just grateful that you would allow me to be any part of that with you for a stretch. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. So this has been Paul McDonald and Whaler Giles talking about The Martian. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you join us next time here on the Men at the Movies podcast. Commander Lewis, I may need you to do something for me. If I die, I need you to check in on my parents. They'll want to hear all about our time here on Mars. I know that sucks. And it'll be hard talking to a couple about their dead son. It's a lot to ask. Which is why I'm asking you. I'm not giving up. We just need to prepare for every outcome. Please tell them. Tell them I love what I do. good at it. And I'm dying for something big and beautiful. And greater than me. Tell them I said I can live with that. And tell them thank you for being has been awakened. I can no longer be who I was before. But if I am no longer who I was, who am I to be?